0: That worked. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke 11, and if you don't have a Bible, you should be able to find one in the pew in front of you. Luke chapter 11. George Mueller, who was born into the home of a German tax collector... And was often in trouble, even at an early age. He uh, learned how to steal and gamble. And while a young teenager discovered how to stay in expensive hotels and sneak out without paying. Yet at age 17, he was caught and thrown into jail. And after spending a little time there, he was released and continued his wicked behavior. His father... Uh, didn't seem to be all that discouraged about his wicked behavior, but thought that it might be a good profession to go into the ministry because ministers could make a good living. And so for merely economical reasons, he encouraged his son to enter into the university to study to become a clergyman. Yet when he was in the university, he got acquainted with some evangelical believers, and one Saturday in 1825, he met Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Mueller married and settled down in Bristol, England, growing up uh, uh, or growing in his faith, and and just increasingly having a burden for the homeless little children who were running wild and ragged through the streets. At a public meeting in Bristol on December 9th, 1835, he presented a plan for an orphanage. Several contributions came in. Mueller rented Number 6 Wilson Street on April 11th, 1836. The doors of the orphanage were opened and 26 children were immediately taken in. A second house was soon opened and then a third. From the beginning, Mueller refused to ask for funds or even to speak of his ministry's financial needs. He believed in praying earnestly and trusting God, who already said in his word that he would provide what was needed. During the course of his 93 years, Mueller housed more than 10,000 orphans, prayed in millions of dollars, and recorded in his journals Over 50,000 answers to prayer. One such example involves a morning when the plates and bowls and cups were set before uh, the, the orphans. The problem was there was no food and there was no milk. The children sat waiting for breakfast and Mueller decided to pray for their daily bread. A knock at the door sounded. It was the baker. Mr. Mueller, he said, I couldn't sleep last night. Somehow I felt you didn't have bread for breakfast. So I got up at 2 a.m., bake some fresh bread. So I, So here it is. A second knock sounded. The milkman had broken down right in front of the orphanage. He wanted to give the children his milk so he could empty his wagon and jack it up and repair it. So the children ate and were satisfied like every single other day. In the entire ministry of George Mueller. It didn't matter how many children were taken in. It didn't matter how many orphanages they started. All of them were always provided for. Finances were never discussed and their needs were always met. Mueller never begged for money. He never told anybody about his financial situations. He just had faith in God and prayed. George Mueller was burdened for orphans, and what's amazing is, is as you look at his life and you read, uh, if you've never read it, it's a small little book, but it's very encouraging. Just some of his journal entries is called "Answers to Prayer." As you read that, you discover that George Mueller just had come to a place through a series of events when God answered his prayers, and he just made the decision in his life that he was no longer going to doubt the Lord. And that was it for him. He knew God was going to provide and fulfill his word, and that was it. And he just said from that time on, I never doubted God again and prayed in faith, and he always came through. He refused to buy into the world's methods of begging and writing letters and hiring somebody to, you know, oversee their capital stewardship campaign. He prayed, he had faith, and God provided. God took care of George Mueller and his army of orphans. And sometimes at the last minute, but he always pulled through. You know, we live in a very affluent society and a very a uh, rich country most christians in america go through life never once getting to the place where they have no other means of survival but god and god alone we get into uh something that is a trial in our life and we just call mom or we call dad or we call a relative uh, we just don't get desperate. You know, we don't get really desperate. And if we do, and we might have to use our visa and go into debt. And even if we don't need things, we use our visa and go into debt. Sometimes if we're really, really bad off, we might have to sell some of our stuff that's destined to perish. But there is this joy, this blessing, which can only be had and only received when you put yourself Into a situation or God puts you into a situation where your only means of survival is God and his miracles working in your life. And then you get to see God provide for you day by day as He promised and it builds your faith, it encourages you, it makes you trust God more and more and sadly many Christians in America never experience that ever in their life and so they never really quite get to the place where they absolutely trust God for everything in their life because after all they've got their job, they've got their houses, they've got their money, they've got their credit cards and they falsely are deceived into thinking that it is by their might and their industrious efforts and their hard work that they have what they have and they can provide for themselves and they don't need God. And so, by and large, in America, the church has forgotten the Lord. Forgotten the Lord. The difficult thing is not to pray when you have nothing. You know, if uh, some sort of economic collapse came over, you know, America followed by a huge national earthquake, followed by a giant famine and shortage of food and shortage of water, we'd pray. We'd pray hard. But the difficult thing to do is to pray when things are good. When God is blessing you, when you have an abundance, when things are just beyond what you can imagine, when you're not in debt and your health is good and you've got a good job and you've got, you know, money for toys and entertainment and things, then to realize that I need to pray and I need to pray harder than I've ever prayed before because to whom much is given, much is required. You know, in our society, if you're a Christian, and you're a faithful person. I mean, you're not, you know, squandering everything you make on drugs and alcohol and worthless, worthless things. And even if you're very poor, I mean, what happens? Well, you go to the job service. You hook up with welfare. I mean, you know, you just cannot. Our country is a welfare state. I mean, you know, the poorer you are, the, the better a blessing it is. I remember when I was in college, when I was working um, full time and going to school full time, I couldn't get any grants, But as soon as they quit my job, they gave me money. If you're poor, they give you money. That's how our country works. And for many, their God is the government. They trust the government. They have faith in the government. The government will save them. The government will provide for them. And the more money we have, the more difficult it becomes to trust in God because we have our money, we have our jobs, we have our things, we have our savings account, we have retirement or whatever. But we know from the word of God that God is the one who gives us the power to make wealth, that all good gifts come down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. As Paul asks, what do you have that you did not receive? And the implied answer is nothing. And then he says, and if you received it, then why do you act as if you had not received it? Calvary Bible Church, in order to be the kind of church, the local church that God wants it to be, must become a church of prayer. If we want God's blessing, we want to see and experience all that God has for us to really use this church, we've got to become a church of prayer. We have to go against the inclination to think that prosperity means we can forget God. And this is why we are taking some time to closely examine the Lord's prayer, disciples' prayer found in Luke chapter 11. We, like the disciples, need to learn how to pray and get into the habit of praying and to make prayer just part of our necessary life, like food or even more than food. Last week, we started into Luke 11 which records the, the second occurrence of the disciples' prayer. The first one is in Matthew 6 on the Sermon on the Mount. Here it's about a year later. The disciples come to Jesus and say, you know, we want to learn how to pray. Like John taught his disciples to pray. They have seen Jesus off in the distance praying and they thought, man, look at him go, man. He is so faithful. He's so fervent. He's so regular. We need, we want to pray like that. So they say, teach us to pray. And Luke's version, though shorter than Matthew's, doesn't really leave anything out. Everything included in Matthew that's left out in Luke is implied in all the phrases in Luke. So Luke is just a little bit more dense. It's just compact, but it's not lacking in anything. Now... I mentioned last week and a bunch of things which I can't go into this morning And if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to listen to that sermon um, and also to listen to two messages on prayer from Luke 516. You can listen to them on the web or get them from the office because I want to kind of build in us not only the theology of prayer, but the how to of prayer. And so those previous sermons teach us about the theology of prayer, how prayer works, how prayer makes a difference or why, why we pray and how a sovereign God who are, has already declared the end from the beginning answers prayer. and What does that mean? And so that is all covered in those previous messages. And last week, we looked at several things from the text. Now, I wish it were true, but I think Calvary Bible Church is pretty anemic in the prayer category. I, we have people who pray and people we, who, who we have praying faithfully. But I think most people just pray a little bit or rarely at all. And I think even among those who are praying and praying faithfully, few of them are really praying according to the text before us. We just pray because this is how By chance we have fallen into it. It is not purposeful prayer or prayer directed by the word of God. And you know, there's nothing wrong with being bringing any legitimate request before the Lord. We know we are to pray about all things and pray at all times. So what we pray for is everything. But the question is this. Are there priorities in prayer? Are there ways we can pray that are actually sinful? If we do not pray correctly, then our prayers are worthless. They don't please God. They don't give him glory. They're not answered. In fact, we could be sinning while praying. That's a scary thought, isn't it? To get to heaven and discover that, oh, all those prayers went in the trash. In addition to knowing how to pray, we need to know what to pray. Yes, we need to pray according to God's will. That's clear. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. But since most people don't spend hours a day in prayer, are there priorities of things we should pray about? You see, if you're only going to pray, let's say 10 minutes a day, does it matter What you pray for. Does it matter to God that certain things are prayed for over others? Or is all prayer the same to him? Does it matter that... The prayers of Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament recorded for us are primarily focused on two things. Knowing the word of God and obeying the word of God. When our prayer and our prayer sheets are primarily focused on the healing of the sick and finances. Is that okay? Does that make a difference? If you're only going to pray 10 minutes a day, does God care what you pray for? And the answer is absolutely. God is concerned with the way we pray and the content of our prayers. And our text before us teaches us those two things. And so look at your Bible, Luke chapter 11, and we're just going to read the first four verses, though the first 13 verses are all about prayer. And it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive anyone, everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Last week, we pointed out that Jesus' example teaches us that we should be diligent in prayer. He was a man of prayer. We should be men and women of prayer. Jesus even got away in the middle of the night, a couple texts say. While it was still dark. That is, he sacrificed sleep to pray. In other instances, he chose not to minister to people with real needs in order to pray. Prayer was a priority for Jesus. It should be a priority for us. We also learned before that when Jesus had a big decision to make, like the choosing of the 12, he really prayed all night. Secondly, we saw the disciples' willingness to want to learn how to pray. The disciples watched Jesus at a distance. They watched Jesus daily engaging in fervent prayer, and they said, I want that. And the question is, do we want that? And if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you should want to learn how to pray too. Third, we learn about who we are to pray to, and that is where we kind of left off last week. The object of prayer, or the one we pray to, is to be our Heavenly Father, God. You know, you hear people talk about sometimes about, you know, there's power in prayer. Well, technically there's not. There's power in God that we pray to. You can pray to a statue and there's no power there. You can pray as an unbeliever and there's no power there. You can pray as a believer in a way that doesn't honor God in a sinful way. There is no power there either. So really, it's not prayer itself that has power, but The one we pray to who is all-powerful to answer prayer. Prayer is powerful because God is all-powerful. And Jesus says we are to pray to God the Father. Now, there's a common question people ask at this point, and I wasn't going to include this, but I thought, you know, if I don't talk about this, then all these people are going to come up afterwards, and then all the people who didn't come up are still going to be wondering what the answer is. And it's this. Can we direct our prayers to Jesus and or the Holy Spirit, or should we always pray to the Father? You ever wonder about that? Yeah, see. People are going, yeah, tell us about that. Jesus, when uttering these words, this disciple's prayer, both in Matthew 6 and Luke 11, was during... The time of his humility. Now we need to keep this in mind. When Jesus is ministering on earth. He is a man. He has humbled himself. He is living as a man in a sin cursed world. And we can't forget that. And. He came to only do his father's will. As a man. So in order to keep. Linked up with his father, so to speak. He was constantly in prayer, asking God to help him in every part of his life and ministry, which is the model for us and what we should be doing. He had laid aside in becoming a man, he laid aside the independent exercise of his divine attributes. Now, I'm trying not to confuse you here, but you've got to get this because this is critical. Jesus, in becoming a man, though fully God, chose not to exercise his divine attributes. Now you say, well, how does that work? I don't know. I don't know how somebody who is everywhere present can choose not to be that and still be that. You know, let's say you're a young man. It's your first year of college and your father buys you a brand new luxury sports car. And it's washed, and it's clean, and it's in the garage, and it's got a little soft cover over it. And he says, son, the car is yours. But you can't drive it whenever you want until you graduate from college. But periodically, I will come to visit you, and and when I come, I'll drive it, and then you can drive it when I'm with you. Well, that's kind of how it was when Jesus became a man. He, In becoming a man, it's like he parked all of his divine attributes in the garage. And he chose not to use them unless the Father's will said, okay, you can do this divine thing. So he was totally subservient to the Father and the Father's will as a man having all the fullness of deity and bodily form, being the exact representation of God's nature, in all respect, the one and only God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus said, though I am the infinite God, I am taking the infinitude of all of my attributes and parking them in the garage so that I can be a man Live among men, be tempted as men, suffer as men, die as a man. So that those given to me by my father could be saved. Because Jesus came to do the father's will, he was constantly in prayer. Now, if I were to ask you, does God want us to do his will? You'd say, oh, yeah. Well, what does that require? Constant prayer. Constant prayer. Jesus came to do the Father's will, right? And he was regularly, faithfully going away, sneaking away, sneaking out at night, praying, praying, praying. And you think, well, listen, I mean, he didn't even sin and he was praying. Hard, diligently, faithfully. It is common if you get into a discussion with a heretic who denies the deity of Christ that they like to throw this out. So... You believe Jesus is God, huh? Yeah. So, who did Jesus pray to? Was he praying to himself? I mean, if Jesus is God and Jesus prayed to God, then he must have been praying to himself, right? Wrong. And they like to ask that question because most Christians don't know what to say. He's like, I don't know. Uh, yes, no, no, yes. Um, there's only one God. Jesus was God and he was praying to God. And then God was praying to God. Well, the problem is, is they deny the Trinity. They deny one of the cardinal doctrines of Christianity that the one true God, the only God... Is a God of three distinct personalities. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each of those three persons are the one God. They not only have different personalities, they even have different roles and functions. As you trace through the Bible and you look at each one. But though they are different personalities... Though they have different functions within the Godhead, there is a rank of submission. And not only that, each of them is, in essence, fully the one God. Now that, you know, if you're thinking, how does that work? I don't know. But that's what the scriptures say. But Jesus, remember in his humiliation, having parked, so to speak, his divine attributes in the garage, entered into the virgin's womb, and from that moment on was fully man, just like you and and I. Was a human being, with all the limitations that humans have, the same as us, tempted the same as us. Getting cold, getting hungry, getting tired, getting thirsty, just like us in all ways. If he wasn't exactly like us, fully human, then he couldn't atone for our sins because if you're going to be a substitute for a man, you have to be fully man. So he was just like us in all respects. And in that state of humiliation, having parked his divine attributes in the garage, he prayed. Because he had needs. Because he couldn't serve himself. He came only to do the Father's will. And so, like us, he went to the Father and said, Father, help. Father, strengthen. Father, save. Father, you know, let this cup pass from me. I mean, he prayed, prayed, prayed. Most of his prayers are not recorded because he being a man had needs and he was setting an example for us, for his disciples so that we would know as humans, because we have so many needs, we need to appeal to our heavenly father. And so that is what is happening with Jesus prays. Jesus, who's often referred to as the second person of the Trinity, is praying to the first person of the Trinity in the power of the third person of the Trinity, you think, wow, but so in a way, God is praying to God. It's like, yeah, in a way. More specifically, the Son is praying to the Father, and the power of the Holy Spirit. So, what does this mean for us when we pray? Back to the question. It means that when we pray, we can pray to the Father, we can pray to the Son, or we can pray to the Holy Spirit because they are all the one God and we are to pray to God. And the reason we are to pray to God is God is the only one who is everywhere present. God is the only one who hears our prayers. God is the only one who has the power to do things about it. And God is the only one who, when we don't know how to pray as we should, intercedes by his Spirit so that we pray according to his will, even when we don't pray according to his will. Thomas Watson in his work, The Lord's Prayer, wrote this. Though the Father only be named in the Lord's Prayer, yet the other two persons are not excluded. The Father is mentioned because he is the first in order, but the Son and Holy Ghost are included because they are the same in essence. As all three persons subsist in one Godhead, so in our prayers, though we name but one person, we have to pray to all, end quote. And that's how it is. So if you want to pray to Jesus, fine. Fine. Holy Spirit, fine. The Father, fine. So that's how you can pray to. The important thing is that you pray to God, not to a saint, not to Mary, not to statues and carved images and pictures hung on the wall and crucifixes and things like that, which just amounts to idolatry. Well, we learned last week that the term Father is a close, intimate, term the equivalent of really our term daddy or even dearest daddy kind of a strange thing to think for the jews at that time who had so elevated god so magnified god and his his transcendence and his glory that they kind of the average jew kind of pictured god as this huge massive omnipotent being who was just above the heavens and and You know, you kind of come cowering to him in fear and do what he says or you'll get it. Okay, so a lot of people have that same view of God. And if you're a Christian, that's the wrong view to have. The Jew would never feel comfortable seeking, speaking to God in such close, intimate terms as father. You know, daddy. I mean, that just would that just would kind of freak them out. And it's amazing here that Jesus uh, had modeled calling God his father all the time. Sure, they heard Jesus pray to the father, but they're thinking, well, yeah, well, that's easy for you to say. You're the son of man. You're the son of God. You're the Messiah. Of course, you can play to God like that. But, you know, we're just common folk. No, you're not. Not if you're saved. You're not common folk. You're children of the king. You're sons and daughters of the king. You're not common folk. You are a royal priesthood. You're different. You're not common folk anymore when you're saved. Jesus was born of a virgin. And he was different, yes. Yes, he was the son of God and he was the Messiah. But listen, if you know Christ through faith, you are a son or a daughter of of God, you are Jesus's brother or sister. Now, think about that. That's who you are in Christ. That is part of the amazing thing. All believers have God Almighty as their literal father. And Jesus is basically saying, when he says, Now, when you pray, say Father in verse 2 there, he's saying, I am God's son, and you are his sons and daughters through faith in me. I have no fear of coming before my father. And so you have no fear before coming before my father. I approach him faithfully, regularly, without fear. And you should do the same thing because your sons and your daughters too. I call him father because he's my father. You call him father because he's your father. I mean, that is just, that is just a radical concept, but we've got to get that if we're going to have the closeness and intimacy and in prayer that God wants us to have. Most Christians have a very low view of themselves because of their sin and they see their sin as this big barrier between them and God. I mean, after all, we all know we're sinners. We all know our shortcomings We all know that we fail to obey God and live up to his perfect standard and we can constantly feel downcast and we're just, you know, like the prodigal son while he was living with the pigs. But we need to make sure that we grieve as those who have no hope. Why our sin should keep us humble. It shouldn't ever keep us from our father. It shouldn't cause us to forget or ignore that we are children of God. By his choice. By his choice. If you have been born again, you are a son, a daughter of God. And you say, well, how does that work? Well, you know, we we are children of God in three basic ways. Maybe you could even say four ways. The first way is in a universal way. Everybody is a child of God. You could even talk about the universal fatherhood of God. In relation, in this way, in that God is the creator of all men. And so in that way, if you are created, which you are, if God gives you life, which he does, then he is your father in a general way, and everybody fits under that category. Turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. I just want to show you this. This is Paul. He's in the Areopagus. The Areopagus is actually a little hill um, northwest of the Acropolis in Athens. And Paul is there preaching to the Greeks. The problem is the Greeks are pagans. They're polytheistic or they worship many god pagans. They're philosophizing, and the the Areopagus is a place where they kind of gather together for their mental bantering and philosophical wrangling, and they kind of sit there. And then here comes the Apostle Paul, you know, short, maybe bald, and maybe a little chubby, and The apostle Paul, some Jew converted to some new religion. And I mean, he has to kind of connect with them, but he realized they have a totally different worldview. If you come to people like that and you say, you know, there is the God, this God of the Hebrews, they're going, okay, well, add him into the batch. You know, they, they just don't have a concept of one God. And so I want you to notice here how Paul introduces these Pagans who worship many gods to the one true God. Look at verse 22 and follow along as I read. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, a little dig there, I also found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. In other words, he says, you know, I've been going around looking at your statues you worship. And you know what? I saw an altar there even to an unknown God. I want you to know, since you're ignorant of who that God is, let me tell you who he is. Verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, and if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even one of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. You see there? I mean, Paul is laying on them this whole theology of God. He is self-existent. He he doesn't need anything. He's talking about what is called his aseity. God is, is um, in control. He's sovereign. He made man. He made the nations. He determines their boundaries. I mean, we're talking a huge picture of the one sovereign creator of heaven and earth. And Paul says, and even as your poet said, he got it right, we are his children. Verse twenty-nine. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone in the image formed by the art and thought of men. And so now he's he's pushing this whole idea that God is this universal father to all people. Now just leave, stay there in Acts for a minute because I want to talk about something else and we'll get to the very end of Acts 17. So God, in one respects, is everyone's father by mere creation. But in a more specific way, God is a father through election. Because God elects some, those who are saved, then become his children by salvation, by spiritual birth, by being born again, and if you were to read First John and look at first John three nine or four seven or five, one, four, or eighteen, it describes believers as either being born of God or being children of God through spiritual birth. So just as a mother would give birth to a child, and that child is now her child, so God, in causing us to be born again, we become his children through spiritual birth. I mean, you remember Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus in John 3, when he snuck up to him at night and said, you know, we know that you're from God, and no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus says, man, you must be born again. He's going enter a second time into my mother's womb no if you aren't born of the water and you're born of the spirit you cannot enter the kingdom of god you must be born again and he tells him that because he wants him to know that yes god is by creation your father but if you want to have an intimate relationship with god if you want to know god in a personal way you must be born again And this is what Paul drives at. Look at Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31 at the very end there, towards the very end. After he talks about the universal fatherhood of God, now he's going to drive to the more specific category. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man who is appointed heir, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Paul is saying this, though he is the the universal father of all through creation, there must be repentance and faith in Jesus Christ in order for you to become his spiritual children, heirs of his, co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Finally, God is the father of believers through adoption. When we are saved, God adopts us into his family. He takes the initiative to make sinners, his own children, equal to Jesus. Now you think, that almost sounds blasphemous. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. And I think these these are all good things to think about because if you don't understand these things, you'll have a wrong concept of God when you go to him in prayer. You'll think to yourself as, oh, I'm such a worm. You are, but you're a saved worm. (laughs) Oh, but you don't know how much I sin. Well, you think God doesn't know? You think God said, oh, I wouldn't have saved you if I knew you were going to be a sinner. He already knows that. It's nothing new to him. Now look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. And this is just one of many examples that could be cited. But here Paul, in his opening words, says to the Ephesians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him. Before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. God, the father who you are to pray to, took the initiative to save you, and call you, and choose you, and draw you to himself. Knowing what a sinner you are, knowing how often you fall short of his glory, he chose you because he wants to have a relationship with you. And what does all this mean? It means God loves you in a way that you can't even imagine. It means God loves you more than you can possibly even get a grip on it. But see, a lot of times we just think, oh, man, I just can't imagine that God would love me that way. Well, you need to, because he does. Don't think that God's mad at you and angry with you, and don't be sitting and thinking, oh, you don't know how much I've sinned. You know, when I go to God in prayer, I just can barely even lift my eyes to him because I am such a worm. You know, any good parent will tell you their children are sinners. Just go over to the children's building when all those moms or dads are picking up their kids and say, Are your kids sinners? (laughs) (laughs) And any mother will tell you that the bulk of her day is spent correcting, exhorting, admonishing, rebuking, and disciplining her little children. But, oh... She loves them. She loves them. Think about that. And see her there, she's holding them and she's squeezing them and she's loving them in their little sticky hands and chubby little warm bodies. And they're sinners, big time. Big time. And when dad comes home after a long day at work and he joins in the correcting and the instructing and the rebuking and the encouraging and the disciplining and there he is playing with them on the floor. But they're sinners, you say. How could he enjoy them so? They're sinners, yes. Oh, but he loves his children and no father or no mother would ever trade the world for one of their children. Somebody could come and say, I'll buy your children for a million dollars and any good husband or wife would say, No way. How about $2 billion? No. Oh, I'll give you Alaska. <laughs> Some days you think, well, how about a quarter? <sighs> but you love your kids. But God loves us more. He loves us more than any parent has ever loved their children. Take the best mom and best dad who has ever lived. The most faithful, the most loving, the most committed human parents you can think of. And God loves you more than the best that humanity has to offer. He is the perfect father. And what's amazing is, is before the foundation of the world, before the world was created, with omniscience, he knew what you were going to do. He knew all of your sin. He knew all of your sinful thoughts, your sinful deeds, your sinful actions. He knew all the sins you would commit before coming to him. He knew all the sins you commit after coming to him. And he loved you while you were yet a sinner. With a love incorruptible. And he will never forsake you. He will never leave you. He will never abandon you. And Jesus says, this is who we pray to, our Heavenly Father. Paul, in the climatic chapter in the book of Romans, asks this important question, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Just think about this when you're going to prayer. Who's going to separate me from the love of Christ? He says, well, will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword... He says, just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. He says, man, we're sheep and we are being sent out in the midst of wolves and we are even to be slaughtered for your cause. But is that going to separate us? He says, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And that overwhelmingly conquer word, I was just telling one of the youth a while back, I said, yeah, you're wearing some Nikes, huh? Yeah. Well, in the Greek, the term Nike is conqueror. But Paul actually invents a word here. He puts on this intensive um, prefix on it, hooper, and he puts hooper, Nike, uh, a super conqueror. We are super conquerors through him who loved us. And then he goes on to say in verse 38, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And so you have a father to pray to, and man, he's a good one. He's the best. Jesus, in dying on the cross, paid the penalty for all your sins. He bore in his body the punishment you deserve. You have been justified, declared to be righteous. So when you approach the throne of grace, there is never any wrath towards you. God's holy justice is never aroused by any sin you commit. Because all of his holy justice has been poured out on the head of Christ when he was on the cross. Yes, he disciplines you just like you discipline your kids. Yes, he will rebuke you through the preacher, through a friend, through reading the scriptures at a Bible study. Yes, he's going to bring trials into your life. But those things are only there to correct you, to help you. To aid you into becoming more like his son and after he works all this life. And when you finally get to the end of your life, you're still not going to be perfect. But I'm telling you, he's going to finish the job. And when you die, you will be perfect as Christ is perfect. And you will stand before him blameless with great joy. And this is the father that Jesus says we need to pray to But never think that your sin is going to provoke God in wrath against you. Never will happen. All that's taken care of. All that's taken care of. And why is your heavenly father the best of all fathers? Thomas Watson, in his work, The Lord's Prayer, gives this short list. He says he is the best father because he is perfect. You know, God never blows it. He never goes, oh, I'm sorry. He never comes back and says, you know, I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? He never treats his children wrongly. Secondly, he is the best father because he is the most loving. He is more loving than any parent. No one outloves God. Thirdly, he is the best father because he can reform his children. God knows just what you need to fix you. And he will. He will perfect you until the day of Christ Jesus, and you will not escape. He's not going to have any rebels running around in heaven. And whatever he can't get finished on work, he'll finish when you die. And you will be perfect without sin, without the inclination to sin, without the desire to sin. You will be perfect because he knows how to reform his children for God is the best father because he has more riches. That's good. That's good. You know, you have some rich man, he's got some sons, and he dies and leaves his inheritance to them, and one of the wicked son gets control and, and robs and defrauds the other ones and squanders it, or, you know, something happens, and those that the the father who has died wish to take care of with his inheritance, it doesn't happen, that never happens with God, God never dies, he never grows old, he will always be there to bless those he has saved for all ever and eternity, and his riches are unlimited, and so he gives us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Fifth, God is the best father and that he is the most wise. God knows best what to do in every situation in our life. He knows what to bring into our life. He knows what to take away from our life. He knows what we can handle and what we can't handle and what we need to be what he wants us to be. And he's going to get us there. Six, God is the best father because he never dies. He never dies. He's always there. He is the everlasting father. He always lives to bless those who are his children. So when Jesus says, now when you pray, say, father, this is what he means and so much more. I am tempted to do another sermon on father, but I'm not going to. We're going to move on. I was having hard times this week trying to decide what to say and what not to say. But you've got to get this in your mind. If you don't know Jesus as your savior, he's not your father. He's not your father. If you've never repented of your sins and been born again, if you've never experienced that life transformation that saving grace causes in a person's life, God is not your father, except in a universal general way. But not in the way that Jesus is talking about in the prayer here. And so you need to repent of your sin. You need to receive Jesus as John said in 1 John. They're not first John, John chapter one, verses 12 and 13. But as many received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who are born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so if you receive Christ as your savior, if you turn from your sin and your pleasure seeking and your own way of doing it, and you're ready to have God control your life as your Lord, your sovereign, your savior, and you receive Christ, you will be born again. And then you'll have the best of fathers waiting to hear from you in prayer whenever you pray. And for the rest of you who claim to know Christ, there is homework. Last week, I told you, try to pray at least 10 minutes a day. I hope you did that. You think, well, that's not very much. Well, I did have a couple people come up and say, you know, I'm not praying like I should. And I've been trying to pray 10 minutes and I'm having a hard time even praying 10 minutes Just keep it up. Keep it up. Ten minutes of private prayer with God. Just ten minutes. Give God at least ten minutes. Develop the habit of ten minutes a day. Get up earlier. Stay up later. Go out to your car at lunch. Just spend ten minutes a day with your Father in prayer. Develop that habit. Secondly, make opportunities to pray. This is added homework. Sorry, it's going to get better. Just look for ways to pray. Look for people to pray. You know how sometimes you see somebody and they're hurting and you talk to them and you try and encourage them and then you think to yourself, you know, I'm going to have to pray for that person. Then you forget. Well, why don't you just grab that person and say, can I pray for you right now? Just pray for them in the hall. Pray for them out there. Pray from wherever you're at, at work, at lunch, whatever. Just pray for people. Pray. Pray and pray Get involved in corporate community prayer. Pray to your heavenly father. He is the best of fathers and he is waiting for you to pray to him. Let's pray. Father, we are glad we can come before you, that we can boldly approach your throne of grace to find help in a time of need. And boy, do we need it. We we need to be a church that prays. And, Father, even though there's some prayer going on, it's nothing like it could be. Our prosperity, in many ways, has caused us to forget you. Father, help us to learn how to pray in prosperity so that you do not have to bring trial and make us pray. Help us to be men and women of prayer who delight in entering into your presence, knowing that even if we sin, all we have to do is confess it. You're faithful and just to forgive us of that sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that there's never any wrath against us. There's only a loving father waiting at the other end, waiting to hear from us. You just want to hear from us. You just want us to praise you, to thank you, to talk to you, to ask you for things. So that you can then bless us and that we can give you more honor and praise still. Father, help Calvary Bible Church become that kind of church for your honor, for your glory, and for your praise. Amen. Amen.